1: Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off.
0: Over 100 years ago, giant sand dunes threatened to overwhelm parts of Florence, Oregon. The sand came from the Cascade mountain range. Over millions of years, it tumbled down rivers and the wind blew it back onto the coast. Roughly 50 miles of folding, rolling, snaking sand, around four times the footprint of Manhattan. Some dunes are taller than the Great Pyramid of Giza. And that sand moved. It swallowed forests, buried roads and railways, engulfed houses, even entire villages. When writer Frank Herbert visited the area in 1957, He was stunned by the awesome power of the sand. Sand dunes pushed up by steady winds build up waves like ocean waves, every bit as devastating to property as a seismic wave. But it wasn't just the sand that inspired Herbert. The people that lived near these dunes, they were trying to stop the sand from moving, to fix the dunes in place. And to Herbert, it looked like they were winning. The small Oregon coastal town of Florence is the scene of an unsung victory in the fight that men have been waging since before the dawn of recorded history. The fight is with moving sand, with dunes. For Herbert, an idea had taken root. One that would eventually give rise to a science fiction classic. Dune.
2: Planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low. rolling over the sands, you can see spice in the air. The outsiders ravage our lands in front of our eyes.
0: Dune is the story of a desert planet. A world of sand and storms, colonization, and deadly political intrigue. He who can
3: destroy a thing has the
4: real control of it.
0: Dune is now an enduring classic. It's sold millions of copies, and it's been adapted for film and TV a number of times. But the Dunes that inspired Dune? These days, they are not so enduring. Because that project to stop the moving sands It worked really well, too well. Today, the dunes which inspired Dune are disappearing. And now a lot of people
3: want them back. Pretty soon you're going to come up here and you'll talk about dunes on the sign and you won't see any dunes.
5: It's one of those, what do you
4: call it, like a Sisyphean task? It's messy. The whole thing is messy because we've messed it up.
0: Today on Outside In, almost 70 years after Frank Herbert's fateful visit, producer Justine Paradise follows in his footsteps, revisiting the dunes of Oregon to learn what happened after they stopped the moving sands.
6: When I started reporting this story... It felt like everyone was telling me there was one person in particular I should really be talking to. Dina Pavlis. Hi. Hi. OK, my dog's going to have to say hi to you. That's her. fine. So I was delighted when Dina invited me to join her and her German Shepherd. Juno. You know? Juno. No jumping. She's going at me. it's OK. It's OK. I like dogs. On a walk <laughs> to check out a stretch of dunes
4: near her house. One of the deals I have with the neighbors is if you take people out, you don't have them advertise this location. Sworn to secrecy. Yes, so you're sworn to secrecy. I'm taking you to my secret spot. Okay.
6: Dina calls herself an amateur naturalist. But the more I got to know her, the more I came to see just how much of an ambassador for these dunes she is.
4: That's why I moved here, you know. It's the love of my life, the dunes. So, well, my husband, I guess, is the love of my life. Don't let him, don't tell him I said the dunes were the love of my life. They're the second love of my life. Well, the third, because my daughter first. (laughs) Husband, daughter, dunes. That order.
6: In the mid-90s, Dina was living in Seattle,
4: working a stressful job. So stressful, she got sick. I mean, it didn't happen just overnight, but I ended up in a wheelchair. I couldn't walk. And I had contracted an illness from the stress. And I realized that I needed to change my life. Around this time in her life, she visited the
6: coast and experienced the dunes here for the first time. This was almost 30 years ago. It was so wild, so evocative.
4: And I said to my husband, I want to walk on these dunes every day, not just once every few years. And what do you think about moving to the coast? And he said, let's do it. Dina paused long enough to
6: drop off her bags before driving to the Forest Service office and signing up as a volunteer. Eventually, she'd write a book called The Secrets of the Oregon Dunes.
4: We're gonna have to do a little exploring to get through.
6: Dina wants to show me an example of pristine dunes, but we've got a bit of a hike ahead of us. We skirt around the edges of spring ponds. (laughs) That water is
4: so clear. Isn't that beautiful? So, On a warm day, almost warm enough today, but not really, I'll sometimes come out with a bathing suit underneath and swim in some of the deeper ones.
6: Until, at last, we reach a place that really does look like the world of Arrakis. The world of dune. And it is otherworldly.
4: I mean, the way I would describe this is we just have a vast, wide expanse of sand. Just open sand with dune after, like rolling dunes. I would call this rolling dunes.
6: These dunes are National Geographic cover photo material. The hills look like ocean breakers, but the kind that wrecks ships...
4: To me, sand mimics water. It doesn't move like water, but it looks like water would move if you took a photo. So it should be like a wave after a wave after a wave from the ocean, all the way, it would have been past Highway 101, three miles inland, this, these dunes would have extended. You know, what is this, a quarter of a mile maybe width that we've been, you know, diminished to.
6: We hiked to a high ridge on the plain, a place where the dune is
4: demonstrating its old power. So this area here, what you're looking at is a bunch of dead trees, right? We call it a ghost forest, ghost trees. The ghost trees are poking out of the sand at the crest of the dune.
6: They appear maybe 10 feet tall, but really they're 60, 80 feet tall. They're just almost totally buried by the sand.
4: We're walking on treetops right now. These are the tops of these trees.
6: Because the dune is slowly, inexorably, swallowing the forest on the other side of the ridge.
4: What's happened is this sand blows in, and as it blows in, it backs up here against this forest. This is called a retention ridge. When it hits a 33-degree angle, roughly, close to 33 degrees, it begins to slip down. And that slip face, you can see how it's starting to bury the tree. So this sand will fall down. It will bury the trees. It will build up again, slip down again, bury the trees more. So that is the dune process, how the dunes grow and expand.
6: These moving dunes can be intimidating. The biggest hazards are probably dehydration and sunburns. But wander a little too close to a ghost forest, and you could find yourself falling knee-deep into a tree hole, an air tube created when the trunk of the tree decomposes. They're also called devil's stovepipes. So watch where you step. Like Dunes Arrakis, this is not a place empty of people. Humans have lived with the dunes for a long time.
5: There's a site actually not too far from here. Out in the dunes was a a small village, and uh, sometimes it's uncovered and artifacts are exposed and at other times it is completely buried and you would never know that a village had ever been there because huge dune just will completely cover it.
6: That's Patty Werat Phillips. She's an enrolled member of the Confederated Tribes of Coos, Lower Umpqua, and Sayusla Indians. And she's a language teacher for the tribes. People didn't set up their permanent villages in the dunes. The sand and the rivers just moved so much So they spent time in the dunes more seasonally.
5: Yeah, along some of the creeks that flow through the dunes, people had fish camps there every year. The moving sands didn't bother them. They'd just come in and put up with it for a few weeks while they would set up and be fishing for migratory salmon and lampreys.
6: Every so often, when the sand buries a creek, the water pools into dune lakes, some bigger and more stable, others
5: smaller and ephemeral. They almost make a chain. And in fact it was such a good chain of, of lakes that people would portage their canoes between lakes. So they'd paddle along a lake and then haul out the canoe, portage it to the next one, paddle, then haul out portage. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, That's I don't think hard. I Yeah, I don't think I could do it. But they did it. And
6: then and then what happened? Disaster. Um, (laughs) It's a familiar story. European settlers had a very different relationship to the landscape. With the opening of the Oregon Trail and the draw of the gold rush, the number of white settlers in the area grew, leading to conflicts over land, fish, and basic rights. The U.S. government would eventually force their tribes onto a reservation, a reservation that it would gradually shrink before dissolving entirely. And as for the sand, when settlers looked at the dunes, they saw unused land.
3: You know, the the Indians weren't properly utilizing the resources, quote unquote, and and I'm using bunny ears ironically there, mm-hmm. but um, because the the there's a real difference of view of culture. You know, it, they're not resources, they're relationships and relatives.
6: That's Patty's colleague, Jesse Beers.
3: My name is Jesse Beers, Jesse Beers Shah uh, Sha'yuslawan kweech and heech, Kwa person from Sha'yuslawan shla'ai, territory. I uh, am the cultural stewardship manager for the tribe, so work in natural resources and cultural resources. They're one and the same thing for us.
6: To settlers, land should generate value through farming or through timber. They didn't want temporary camps. They wanted permanent homes. So all that movement of sand and water, that was frustrating to say the least. We decide to head outside to check out a spot where we can get a good view of the dunes about 20 minutes away. So Jesse and I climb into his truck. The cab smells sweet and woodsy. He's got bundles of dried plants on the dashboard. Yeah.
3: Yeah. He's got some sweetgrass, some cedars, some white sage. And there's some stickers there if you want a sticker.
6: Smoke salmon, not cigarettes. <laughs> Keep tobacco sacred. As we cross the river on Highway 101, we pass bright blue signs warning us that we're entering the tsunami hazard zone. It's a drizzly day even more so as the road bends into the woods. Under the trees, it's beautiful and almost overwhelmingly green and dim. The forest is so dense. But every once in a while, we get a reminder. We are still driving on sand.
3: This is that spot that kind of constantly comes into the road here. Yeah.
6: We're passing a dune, maybe 60, 80 feet tall. It's a bit grown over, so the only exposed sand is at the very bottom almost like the dune is pointing out its foot underneath a grassy skirt. It looks like it just wants to let go and spill across the highway. Mm
3: -hmm. And it constantly does. (laughs) And uh, ODOT, uh, Oregon Department of Transportation, is constantly removing sand from that area.
6: What do they use, like a tractor?
3: Yeah, like a big bucket. Depends.
6: Echoes. This isn't the only problem area. Just north of town, there's a grocery store with its back right up against a dune. And there, the dune feels like a hulking giant trying to sneak up behind the store. The fence between the parking lot and the sand looks almost comically low. A few people told me they regularly see tractors hauling sand off the parking lot. This is exactly the kind of thing settlers encountered as they tried to put down roots here.
5: We're arriving.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: You can see the waves. Sorry, the diesel. It's probably kind of loud on you. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good.
6: After we arrive, we climb a broad set of wooden stairs to a viewing platform looking west towards the ocean. It's beautiful. But the dunes, they don't really look like dunes. They look like a forest. Yeah, I mean, looking at this, I'm actually kind of... um, Kind of shocked. <laughs> it's like I I had seen pictures of of the dunes and like they they are um, you can kind of see the extent of them looking off uh-huh. to the south here, yeah. um, but it's amazing how much beach grass and forest is covering these dunes.
5: Yeah, I mean it looks a lot different than when Frank Herbert was here. What would that be? Almost seventy years ago. Um, the dunes have changed a lot in a fairly short time frame.
6: Do not look like Arrakis.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Even back in the 50s, they didn't. Because unlike Arrakis, we've always had water. (laughs) You know, there are dozens of lakes and ponds. uh, So it's always been a wet place. And we've always had tree islands, though granted to a much smaller extent. I mean, one of the words I find really fun in the Hanas language, Quachalia. And Quachalia is basically a clump of something different from what's around it. So that could refer to, like, a clump of beach grass, a tree island. They were used to refer to tree islands, so we've always always had them, it's just now the grassy and forested areas are much, much, much bigger than they were even in the recent past. In 1908,
6: after failed attempts at farming in the dunes, President Teddy Roosevelt put much of them in the charge of the USDA's Forest Service. The Forest Service established a two-part planting regime. First, they'd plant a species called European beechgrass. Then follow up with another species, scotch broom, which is a hardy shrub with bright yellow, pea-like flowers. This language can be loaded, but to be clear, both of these are introduced species, native to the coast of Europe and North Africa. And they are
3: tough. This material here, that's roots from European beach grass.
6: Oh yeah, look at it, it's everywhere.
3: And it's, it's,
6: it's strong. Yeah, it's
3: strong and you can, when the sand is dry, it's wet right now. So it just breaks off where, where you pull on it, kind of. But when it's uh, dry sand, you can actually pull this up in big mats. And so it's laying a framework under there to stabilize the grass so it can spread. And it also does this, right? It stabilizes the sand enough that other plants can come in. And you're looking at the sand here that there's tiny little buds of all kinds of different plants coming up.
6: The Forest Service and private landowners planted grass here throughout the first half of the 20th century. Once it was stable, local tree species like pine and spruce
5: started taking root. If you look, you can see there's kind of a solid row of trees behind the beach, and uh, that's just behind what they call the foredune. The dune did not used to exist. It's a creation of the European beach grass, and unfortunately that blocks the inland motion of sand. So, you know, the ocean used to deposit more sand that could blow back into the dune field, and it's blocked off now. Without that cycle of new sand coming in from
6: the ocean, the dunes stopped growing, and the landscape began to transform. Instead of rolling, wave-like dunes, the plantings caused some dunes to change shape, to get spikier and taller. Native species adapted for open, moving sand struggled. Plants like seashore bluegrass, lupins, and pink sand verbena. Insects, like terrifyingly giant sandworms — just kidding, that's a dune joke. There's also the western snowy plover, an endangered shorebird which nests on open sand. Its eggs and its chicks are both the exact color of the sand, because its entire strategy is based on blending in and hiding from their main predators, ravens and crows. But these days, it's a bit like plovers on a platter, because they've only got small patches of sand left in the increasingly forested landscape. At the spot where we're standing, the Forest Service estimates 75% of what was once open sand is gone. 75% replaced by grassy meadows, wetlands, and evergreen trees.
3: And pretty soon you're gonna come up here and it'll talk about dunes on the sign and you won't see any dunes. You'll see forest, which is awesome in its own right, but it's not the dune ecosystem, so.
6: What does it, what does it take to save the Oregon dunes?
5: (laughs) Did you hear that pause? It's, it's one of those, what do you call it? Like a Sisyphean task or it seems like it, you know, because you can try and remove the beach grass, but it, it just comes back almost like it was before Today, the U.S.
6: Forest Service has reversed course. Now they're trying to help bring those native plant and animal species back. So instead of planting grass, they're trying to pull it out. But that grass is a pretty tough opponent.
2: This
6: is Outside In. I'm Justine Paradise. At one point in Frank Herbert's Dune, Paul, the main character, creates a strategy about the desert resources everyone's fighting over.
4: He who can destroy a thing has the real control of it.
6: But on the Oregon coast, destroying the dunes was actually pretty easy. Living with them is a lot harder. And getting the open sand back from the roots of European beach grass is an incredible challenge. If European beach grass gets buried by sand, no matter, it will push up through it. If you burn it, it usually comes back stronger. Sometimes the Forest Service sprays the beach grass with herbicides. I saw a patch where this had been done. The grass looked dead. The clumps had an eerie, silvery cast, like dry bones. But when I got closer, I saw green shoots pushing up from the sand. The beechgrass isn't the only plant to contend with. There's also the scotch broom. It can be cut or pulled out, but it's hard work and a bit discouraging because the seeds of scotch broom can remain viable in the soil for up to 80 years, as one botanist told me. It's not like these efforts do nothing. They make a difference. But in a way, they're treating symptoms and not addressing the source of the problem.
4: There is no new sand coming in here because it can't get here. So this process is, in essence, halted out here.
6: This again is Dina Pavlis. About 10 years ago, around 2014 a coalition formed to save the Oregon dunes. It's a group of some unlikely allies. There are the environmentalists, citizens like Dina, plus the tribes and the Forest Service. And then there are the people who support the area's more than billion-dollar tourism industry. And also, the dune buggy community. Because one thing people love to do on the sand is drive over it in ATVs. Mad Max style.
4: Yeah. We may not all agree on how to use this area, but we all know that it's if we don't do anything, it's going to be gone. I mean, we're watching it disappear. And so they all got together and formed this group, the Oregon Dunes Restoration Collaborative, and they put together a three-prong plan. The first prong was save the best, protect the
6: most pristine areas like the Ghost Tree Ridge at Dina's secret spot. Second prong, restore important spots, like popular hiking areas or places that are home to endangered species like western snowy plovers. The third prong is maybe the most important, but also the most hardcore. The forest and tall foredune right by the beach, they act like a wall, preventing the wind from bringing in more sand from the ocean. The third prong... Is bulldozing the foredune and the forest there, cutting trees to save the dunes. They did do this on one beach,
4: and they had plans for more. So they had all the approvals in place, um, all ready to go. And Baker Beach, which is north of here, was one of the areas, and there were two more to the south. And then the coastal martin, which is a looks like a weasel, was listed as threatened. We don't really know where they are, but. Once an animal is listed, anything that is potential habitat becomes protected. And with that, everything stopped.
6: The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had listed the adorable coastal marten as threatened on the endangered species list. As the marten lost habitat further inland, it moved into these new forests cropping up on the coast. So even though these particular trees are threatening the entire dune ecosystem, now they're protected. Bulldozing them to feed the starving dunes is not an option anymore. I can see, like, you were disappointed because you made this plan and you're trying to restore these processes. Yeah, but, like, we
4: finally had the approval. I mean, that's not easy, right? And so to do all that work and then, you know, and that we got the, that happened right before COVID. So it was like we were told, no, you can't do that big part of the plan. And then COVID hit. Yeah. And it was like everything just came to a halt.
6: In Frank Herbert's Dune, the major powers are fighting for control of the desert on the planet Arrakis. Because this desert is the only place in the system that produces a resource called SPICE, a drug which makes all interstellar space travel possible. But some have a different vision for the planet. A dream of transforming the desert into a paradise. To slowly capture water and terraform the planet. Doing that, though, would also destroy the desert. And the production of the all-important spice.
4: Arrakis could have been a paradise.
5: The work had begun, but then the spice was discovered. Suddenly, no one wanted the desert to go away. Tana.
6: These are competing visions for what the planet should look like. Much like what is happening here, on the dunes which inspired Dune. Conservationists often place different values on species or ecosystems. Some value the dunes for their fragile, unique ecosystem. Others because it's super fun to ride around on them in an ATV. In most contexts, wetlands are places people want to protect... But here, they can feel destructive. And the forest? It sounds like Dina wishes she could cut it down, despite the fact that it's the last stand of an extremely cute, weaselly mammal.
4: And the thing I guess that's hard is, right, like it's messy, the whole thing is messy, right? Like, because we've messed it up. We've messed everything up, you know what I mean? But I think like, well, what about the beetles? And what about, You know, what about the rare plants? And what about the other rare animals that are out here? Like, do we not care about them? So are we just gonna let all of those disappear to protect one animal? You know, and I think that's the thing that's hard. I don't know the answer to that. And by what, the way I'm saying it makes it sound like I have an opinion, but I honestly don't know what the answer is. You know what I mean? My opinion probably, it probably sounds like I have an opinion because I care about this place so much, right? But I really don't know what the answer is.
6: If the strategy of planting grass and scotch broom had been suggested today, in the world as it is now, things might have turned out differently. At least Jesse Beers thinks so. Again, Jesse's the cultural stewardship manager for the Confederated Tribes of the Coos, Lower Umpqua, and Sayuslaw Indians.
3: You know, if those things were happening today, like we're one of nine federally recognized nations within the state we now call Oregon, and we would uh, hold consultations with the Forest Service about, you know, what are the Uh, hazards of this, is there mitigation for these things because these are the predicted outcomes according to tribal indigenous knowledge, like, you know, and so it'd be a whole different uh, conversation than it was at the time it occurred.
6: But of course, it's not like we can just go back to how it was before. First of all, the project was, in a way, successful. While I was in Florence, I was never trapped by giant piles of sand blocking the road. Plus, restoring even part of the dunes is a massive undertaking. The project encompasses more than 13,000 acres across about 50 miles of coastline. This work is going to take a long time, probably generations much like the centuries-long terraforming project on the planet Arrakis. Dina herself has actually never read or watched any of the adaptations of Dune, but she's basically living many of its
4: themes. Science fiction has a way of somehow always predicting the future. Yeah, it's really interesting to see that what is happening here is kind of was predicted. And and really, in a way, what is happening here is what they wanted to happen, right? The goal was to create a forest. They knew what they were doing. They were smart about how they did it. It's just that now we have a different viewpoint, right? So what changed, I guess, is the viewpoint. Because we see the outcome is not what we thought we wanted. You want to walk just for five seconds? This way I can probably show you a few native plants. Okay, yeah. Right here with these runners. This is the uh, coastal or beach strawberry, coastal strawberry. Do you eat the strawberries? Oh, my God, they're so good. This year they'll be early, I think, because we've had a lot of rain.
0: Before you go, if you're inspired to see the dunes of Dune for yourself, Justine, you've got a travel tip to share, right?
6: Yes, and this is kind of applicable to anywhere you travel, but go to the public library. The Sayuslaw Public Library in Florence is home to the Herbert Collection, which is a collection of books that Frank Herbert was reading at the time he was writing Dune and that he used to inspire him. It's got everything from the desert, to the Middle East, to rug hooking, to spirituality. Uh, So if Dune has ever meant something to you, I will tell you that it is great fun to browse this collection.
0: That sounds amazing. I just love small town libraries, period, so next time I'm in Florence, I'm going to have to check it out. We should also note uh, that Oregon Public Broadcasting has also reported on this collection and we're going to put a link in the show notes.
6: Special thanks to Meg Spencer, the library director who showed me this collection. Special thanks also to Kevin Mitke and to Armin Rubischke and Kagan Benson of the Forest Service for help fact-checking this episode. And thank you to our colleague and friend, Nick Capadice, who lent his voice to bring Frank Herbert to life. Nick is the co-host of the wonderful podcast, Civics 101.
0: This episode was reported, produced, and mixed by you, Justine Paradise. (laughs) It was edited by Taylor Quimby and Katie Culinary. Our team also includes Felix Poon. Rebecca Lavoie is NHPR's director of podcasts. Music in this episode came from Sarah the Illstrumentalist, Elm Lake, Chris Zabriskie, and Blue Dot Sessions. Outside In is a production of NHPR.